seated. And take out your copy of God's Word, if you would. And if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, uh, there's one in, in the back of every row in front of you, or there should be, and um, you are welcome to take that as our gift to you. We, we desire for those Bibles to be used every day. And so if you don't have a copy of God's Word, or maybe you have a copy that is difficult to read, it's a difficult translation, we would be so honored for you to take a copy of God's Word home with you and make use of it as our gift to you. We're looking at Hebrews 11 today. It's found on page 1008 of the Bible in your row. And we're continuing through this chapter that's known as the by faith chapter, or sometimes it's known as the hall of faith, where we see the, in a sense, the heroes of the Old Testament. And of course, if you really know these guys, you know they're really not heroes at all. All of them had their frailties and failures. But today we're going to read about three men. They're known as the patriarchs or the fathers of the faith, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Before I read God's word, let's pray for God's blessing. Our Father, as we contemplate these men who lived nearly 4,000 years ago, I pray that you would make the truths of their lives relevant to ours today. I, I pray that these fathers, though dead, would still speak to us. We, we pray especially that they, as feeble and at times as, as, as failing as they were, would, by their example, teach us how to live by faith in your undeserved mercy, your unexpected grace, and in the unseen hope of your kingdom. But Lord, we know that their mere example is not enough. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to come and apply these truths to our heart that we too might live by faith. And so we pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, we're just going to read three verses, starting in verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word will endure forever. Uh, several years ago, an atheist wrote an article that he thought exposed the sins and the hypocrisy of some of the great heroes of the Bible, these fathers of our faith, men like Jacob, a scoundrel, a deceiver, men like David, an adulterer. And this author pointed them and he said, why would you want a God who associates with people like that? In other words, your faith is full of hypocrisy. Your faith is full of, of sinners. How would you respond to that? Here's how I would respond. It's true and it's amazing that we have a God who would associate with people like that. Because, you know, the real truth, if we're real honest, is we are people like that. 
You know, the Bible, the Old Testament's filled with scoundrels and cheats and adulterers and murderers and gossips and slanderers and all-around sinners. And we need a God who not only associates with people like that, but redeems people like that. And so rather than taking, taking that as a, a complaint or an accusation against the, the veracity of Christianity, I, I think it testifies to the truth of Christianity, that the only way people like that and people like this and people like you can have any hope is that we have a God like that who associates with sinners and scoundrels. And not only does he associate with them, but he redeems them. In fact, there's something incredible. If we were to look back just a few verses in Hebrews chapter 11, we looked at a couple weeks ago. Not only does he associate with sinners and scoundrels, look back at verse 16. It says, he isn't ashamed to be called their God. Do you have family members that you've ever been sort of ashamed of? You know, sort of just the really strange uncle, the the really odd third cousin and people say are you related to him and you're kind of like really distantly and by the way if you don't have people like that in your family there might be people that see you that way but God is so surprising here he says of people like Jacob the deceiver he's not ashamed to be called their God. And let me tell you, beloved, if you belong to Christ by faith, then he's not ashamed to be called your God either. Now, how can that be? Because if you and I are honest with ourselves, we should be ashamed. The things that have happened in our life in the darkness, perhaps 50 years ago, perhaps this morning on the way to church when we lost our temper with our spouse, We know we should be ashamed. So how is it that God, the Holy One of Israel, our Heavenly Father, could say He is not ashamed to be called our God? In a sense, by saying that He's not ashamed to be called our God, He's saying, these who have looked to my son for salvation, their sins have been forgiven. I've wiped away their sins and their scoundrelliness and they're mine forever and I am pleased to be their God because they are one with my son. You know, Hebrews 11 has exhibited this so wonderfully because you've seen the sinners and the scoundrels. You've seen the Noah's. Noah, yes, we know that God powerfully used Noah to to redeem a remnant through the flood, but Noah comes through the flood and commits great sin. You see, Abraham, yes, who is the father of our faith in many ways, but he was also an idolater before he was called. He was an adulterer, and he was a liar. And God is not ashamed to be called their God. And so when we come to Hebrews 11, it's fascinating to me. There is no mention of these people's sins. Why? Because God is showing us those sins have been washed away. They've been taken away as far as the east is from the west. These three verses that we're looking at today are are fascinating. We spent 12 verses looking at Abraham. And now the focus is shifting to Abraham's offspring. And we're only going to spend just a couple of verses looking at them. But, but these are significant verses. Now, why does it focus on these guys right after Abraham? Well, I think for one thing, they stand as proof that God is a covenant-keeping God. He made promises to Abraham, and he is keeping those promises through the covenant line. 
But what's more, what these guys particularly teach us today is that with all their warts and all their flaws, what made them special was not them, but the goodness of their God. That's why we remember these names, not because of the specialness of these men, but the goodness of their God. I want you to see three things as we work our way through the text. First, we see undeserved mercy in verse 20. Undeserved mercy. Second, we see unexpected grace in verse 21. And then finally, we see unseen hope in verse 22. So look with me first. Verse 20, the undeserved mercy. We're told here, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. You need to rewind in your minds back to Genesis. A lot of the ladies of the church will have a little bit of a leg up on us because they've studied Genesis lately, but, but some of us are going to have to re- rewind way back, all the way back to Sunday school to remember the story. Isaac was Abraham's son. He was the child of promise, but you know what else he was? He was a really dysfunctional parent. He was a really dysfunctional parent in a really dysfunctional family. In fact, I was thinking about it this week. If, if Isaac had, had called and said, hey, can your son come over and play? I'd go, you know, I'm not really sure I want him hanging out with y'all. This is a messy family. Isaac married Rebecca. She became pregnant with twins. With the announcement of her pregnancy came an announcement from God back in Genesis 25 that the younger son would receive the blessing that ordinarily would have been reserved for the older son. See, in that culture, there was a a rule, a practice called primogeniture. The eldest son got the bigger blessing, got the greater privileges. And God says, even while these two are in the womb, that the younger is going to be the greater. God is turning over the custom of that day. But there was a problem, and the problem was Isaac loved the older son Esau more. And so he wanted Esau to have the blessing despite what God had said. And then, in the other part of this dysfunctional family, you have Rebekah and Jacob. And and they don't trust the Lord to keep his promise that the younger would receive the blessing. And so they work up a scheme to deceive Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob rather than Esau. It ultimately works, and yet, because of their sin, because of their deceit, it alienates pretty much everyone in the family from one another. And nobody really comes out of the story looking good. In in fact, if you're going to feel sorry for anybody in the story, you almost have to feel sorry for Esau. You have Isaac going directly against what God has told him. You got Jacob and Rebekah deceiving the head of the household. Now what's fascinating is Jacob ultimately does what God had said, giving the blessing to the younger son, but he didn't do so willingly. Now that's what makes Hebrews 11 verse 20 so fascinating when it says, by faith uh, Isaac had invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. You know, if you look back at that story, you might go, where do we see Isaac's faith at all? Well, when you read the story in Genesis 27, one thing we see is Isaac doesn't recant of his blessing going to Jacob. He he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't go back and try to barter with God to give the blessing to Esau. 
If you were to keep reading Genesis 27, you'd see that Isaac does give Esau something of a blessing as well. But what Isaac came to see, it seems, is that God used Jacob and Rebekah's deceit to accomplish his own ultimate purposes. You know, one of the things we love to say is that God uses sin sinlessly. And, and so God is not guilty of Jacob's sin by any means, and yet he used Jacob's sin to carry about his own purposes. You know, if we were to read through this story for the first time with, 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 without biblical lenses, I think we would feel like it's a pretty unfair story that Jacob received the blessing and Esau didn't. But you know, as you read more about the life of Jacob, you read more about the life of Esau, you really have to wonder, why would God be good to either of them? Jacob was a deceiver and Esau was just a brute. You know, he sold his birthright for a, a, a pot of stew. He, he was just a brutish man. Well, there's something fascinating that the scriptures do with Jacob and Esau all throughout the rest of the Bible. Those two, from Genesis 27 on, become emblematic of God's undeserved mercy. I want you to look with me at Romans 9. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul has been talking about the sovereignty of God in election, in predestination. And he says, starting in verse 6, Romans 9, verse 6, But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as, as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, if you're not familiar with the, that passage, it's going to sound really weird to hear God saying, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God shouldn't hate anything, right? You know, it's not true. God hates sin. Sin is utterly despicable in God's eyes. And if you know anything about the holiness of God and how much he hates sin, how despicable it is, then you shouldn't be surprised that God had such disdain for the life of Esau. What should surprise you is that God had any love at all for Jacob. Jacob, who is the deceiver, who has sinned so boldly against his family, who has so distrusted God at various points in his life. 
You know, Scripture goes to great lengths to show us how unlovable Jacob is. He deserved hell. He received mercy. You know, that's what mercy is. When God doesn't give us what we deserve in order to give us something better. We shouldn't be surprised that God was angry over Esau's sin, but we should be amazed that God showed grace to Jacob. Commentator Raymond Brown says it this way, Although Jacob was so desperately unkind to his father, so pathetically misled by his mother, so astonishingly jealous of his brother, yet God helped him, used him, and blessed him. It's true, isn't it? God says, despite it all, I'm going to help you, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to bless you. And then Raymond Brown says, God's blessings are given not because we deserve them, but because we desperately need them. If we're all perfectly honest with ourselves, don't we realize how little we deserve and how badly we need God's mercy? You know, frequently, and there's, there's several of us in this church that say this, I hope it never becomes cliche or trite, but if somebody asks me, how are you doing? I'll say, better than I deserve. Because I know what I deserve. Every moment of the day, I deserve hell. And every glass of water, every breath of air, every joyful moment in my life is exponentially better than anything I deserve. And sometimes people will hear that and they'll go, oh no, and they'll laugh like it's a joke. It is not a joke. I deserve hell and everything I've gotten is infinitely better than anything I deserve. Isn't it amazing that Jacob's sin was not a deterrent to God's love? And the reason is God set his love upon Jacob before Jacob was even born. We saw that in in Romans 9, didn't we? Before either of them had done any good so that we would know it was not by works, but according to him who calls, God set his love upon Jacob. There was nothing good that caused God to do that. But in fact, it wasn't just when they were in the womb. I want you to look at Ephesians 1 for a moment. God's love for Jacob, the scoundrel, the deceiver, had been upon Jacob from before the foundation of the world. Look at Ephesians 1. Verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Just out of curiosity, did you realize that this morning when you woke up? If you are in Christ, every spiritual blessing is yours. We sure live like orphans, don't we? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God, by his own sovereign mercy, before even Jacob or Esau were a thought in their parents' minds, before the world even came into existence, God has set his love upon Jacob. And again, if you're apt to say, that's not fair, why didn't he set it upon Esau? You've missed the gospel. 
if you understand the gospel, you're amazed that God would love anybody because of what we deserve. And God didn't choose Jacob because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that Jacob would one day have faith. Jacob had faith because God had chosen him. And God one day, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, brought that faith into being in Jacob. Faith is not a work that saves us. It is evidence that we have experienced God's saving work in us. Doesn't that give you great hope? God loved Jacob from before the foundation of the world. And what is so wonderful about a love that has existed from before the foundation of the world is that it is independent of anything I have ever done or ever could do. That's why Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Love that had no beginning, that wasn't contingent on something you did, also will have no end. You cannot lose it. You who belong to Christ, who have experienced his undeserved mercy, you cannot fall out of favor with God. How could it be that God could be so merciful despite everything that Jacob had done wrong? Through Christ. 2,000 years before the incarnation, Jacob came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Jacob, in a sense, was the antichrist in one sense. Just listen to how different he was than the Lord Jesus. In the hour of Esau's desperate need, Jacob prepared a meal so that he could steal Esau's birthright. But in our hour of desperate need, Jesus prepared a meal in order that he could share his birthright with us. And we observe that meal every time we take the Lord's Supper. Jacob took on the identity of Esau, dressing himself in his brother's robes and covering himself in a skin of a sacrifice so that he could steal his brother's blessing. Didn't Jesus do the exact opposite? He took on our identity, dressing himself in the rags of our unrighteousness so that we might be dressed in his beautiful righteousness. He covered himself as our sacrifice. He who knew no sin became sin so that he might take away our curse and we might share in his father's blessing. Jacob sought to steal the blessing. Christ sought to share the blessing. The reason Jacob received mercy he didn't deserve is because Jesus took the wrath that Jacob and you and I do deserve. That's the undeserved mercy that we see here. It's received by faith alone, not by works. Now, second, I want you to see unexpected grace. Look at verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob's now an old man. He knows he's not long for this world. And a lifetime of lessons oftentimes lessons born from his own failures, they're sinking in. We get a hint of that with the staff. He's leaning on his staff because back in Genesis 32, he he wrestled with God, and the long-term result was that he limped for the rest of his life. And now at the end of his life, he wants to bless his grandchildren. 
And, and in the scene that Hebrews 11 is talking about, it's specifically the children, the sons of Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh, the older, Ephraim, the younger. Tradition would dictate again that the older would receive the greater blessing. And so ordinarily, the way this would have worked out is Jacob would have put his right hand on Manasseh, the older. But what he did was he actually put his right hand on Ephraim, the younger. Joseph assumed it was a mistake. My father's old. Maybe he can't see. Maybe he's confused. And Joseph, uh, excuse me, Joseph assumed it was a mistake. Jacob insisted on giving the younger brother the greater blessing. This is, this is unexpected grace. Even Joseph doesn't get it, but Jacob is, is conveying the lesson he served, uh, he learned so long ago. We don't earn the grace of God. It must be freely given. We can't obligate God to give us favor. It is freely given. And Jacob seems to get that. That just as we saw God mercifully not give Jacob what he did deserve, here we see God graciously giving the younger Ephraim what the grace that he didn't deserve. You know, the last thing you and I want is what we deserve. We need grace. I think my favorite C.S. Lewis book is The Great Divorce. It's not about a divorce between a husband and a wife, but the distance, the divorce, the difference between heaven and hell. And in Lewis's amazing imagination, you have some who are not residents of heaven, and there's dispute over whether they were uh, actually in hell or they're just uh, people who have not yet died but they are given this vision of heaven they're able to go up and sort of travel around and one of those is a ghost uh, a murderer excuse me one of those is a ghost he was an unbeliever the other was a murderer who now lives in heaven the unbeliever says, what I'd like to understand is how you got here. You're as pleased as punch, you a murderer here, while I've been walking around down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. Personally, I've thought, I thought you and I should be the other way around. I should be up here and you should be down there. That's my personal opinion. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious, religious man. I don't say I didn't have any faults, but I did my best all my life, you see. I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I did my job, you see. That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that. He's talking about the righteous robes of the saints in heaven. And I'm only a poor man, but he says, I got to have my rights the same as you. I, don't want, I only want my rights. I don't want anybody's charity. That word charity is the same as the word grace. He says, I want what I deserve. I don't want grace. And the man, the, the murderer, the believer says to him, then do at once. Ask for charity. Ask for grace. Everything here is for the taking, but nothing can be bought. There is a sense of rugged individualism among many of us 
in the South, in Christian culture, that says, I just want what I deserve. I've been a good person. I'm owed something. What are you owed, according to Scripture? Eternal punishment. And the man is saying, please just ask for grace. Ask for charity. And I want to say the same thing to you. If your sense that you are acceptable before God, that you will be in heaven, is that you've been a pretty good person, you tried to do right, you paid your bills, you did this, you did that, you helped little old ladies across the street, you were an elder, you were a deacon, you taught Sunday school. If those are the reasons you think that you will go to heaven, I want to warn you that you are in great danger of hell. The only hope you or I have of heaven is in God's grace alone. And so I plead with you, ask for the charity, ask for mercy, ask for grace, and God will never withhold it from any who genuinely seek it. You know, that's a chief evidence of someone who gets the gospel, is you understand you deserve sin and death, but by grace you get life in Christ Jesus. Well, finally, as we look at Joseph in verse 22, I want you to see an unseen hope. And again, this is a story that requires a little bit of retelling. Joseph was Jacob's son who, through a series of deceptions by his brothers, ended up a slave in Egypt, and then through a series of miraculous providences, ends up essentially being the prime minister of Egypt. And through his wisdom that was given to him by God, he was able to make preparations that not only saved Egypt from famine, but it actually saved God's people from famine. Well, although Egypt was a haven for God's people for a time, they were just visitors there. And Egypt was nothing like the land of promise that God had deeded to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. But Joseph knew the, the promises God had made to Abraham, that the land of promise would one day be theirs. And Joseph knew that if God makes a promise, even if he hadn't seen it with his own eyes, it was as good as certain. It was as good as fulfilled, even if it wasn't fulfilled in his own earthly lifetime. And so at the end of Joseph's life, as he prepared to die, they were still in Egypt. There was no clue when they would return to the promised land, but Joseph made this unusual arrangement that when God's people finally left Egypt, Joseph's bones would be carried up from Egypt in the land of Canaan. When I die, I want my bones preserved and carried up into the land of Canaan. Now, at first glance, that seems like a very strange desire. His, by the time they would depart, several centuries later, his bones were, were, were probably just dust. And, and beyond that, as one commentator pointed out, he said to carry a coffin on a long journey through a hot wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula would be both burdensome and sort of creepy. But it was Joseph's dying plea. Why? Why did this matter to Joseph? Because Joseph knew, in a very faint way, there would one day be a resurrection of the dead. He knew his bones would one day be raised. And the way he knew that was God had made a promise. He had not yet seen that promise fulfilled. And he says, okay, if I die, then God's going to resurrect my bones somewhere because he can't break a promise. 
I want my bones transported to the land of Canaan to, to be with God's people until they're resurrected. He knew beyond what his eyes could see in his own lifetime, God would keep his promises. Isn't that the point that Hebrews has been making again and again and again? That if we walk by sight, then we, we become ignorant. We become blind to God's promises. And we begin to live with the rule of our lives being what we can see, what we can touch and feel and comprehend, and we fail to walk by faith. But what's Hebrews been saying again and again? We must walk by faith. We must walk by faith that this world isn't all there is. We must walk by faith that there's a future resurrection. We must walk by faith. We're going to see this gloriously in Hebrews 12. We walk by faith that there's a city that cannot be shaken. And Joseph's bones paint a picture of that unseen yet sure and certain hope. And just think about this. Uh, We're told a couple hundred years later in Exodus 1 verse 8, the new king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. In other words, he didn't know how God had spared Egypt through Joseph. He had been forgotten, but not among the people of Israel. Because Joseph's bones, in a sense, catechized the people of Israel for four centuries of hard labor that one day these bones will be resurrected. That's the real promised land. That's what you say when you're saying in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. One day these bones will die, but I'll be resurrected in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, Joseph's request wasn't so much about his bones. He knew God could resurrect his bones from dust no matter where he was. But it was a picture of the things unseen that we have in Jesus Christ, this future resurrection, the eschaton, the end of all things. It it was, this was an act of unseen hope. He would die and his bones would one day be brought into the land of Canaan. And he did so by faith. You know, Hebrews 11 is going to say of all these people, it's going to summarize them, that the world was not worthy of them. And that was so true of Joseph. Perhaps one of the godliest characters in the Old Testament. The world wasn't worthy of him. Isn't that how he withstood the temptation of Potiphar's wife? This world is not worthy. Isn't that how uh, he could forgive his brothers who had betrayed him and he didn't hold bitterness against them? Because this world is not worthy. He had a faith that rested upon a hope unseen and yet more real and more stable than anything in this world. Christian, you and I need to cultivate a vision to walk by faith and not by sight. We need to live with one eye on the things unseen that we grasp hold of by faith. We walk by sight because it's easier but walking by faith is far better. So let me ask you, what of you? Where does your hope lie? Does it lie in things that can be seen? The health of your 401k? In your relationships? In family members? Where does your hope lie? 
It must lie. The only thing that can sustain the weight of your hope is the unseen but unbreakable character of the promises of God. As flawed as these three were, consider the reward they enjoyed. God was not ashamed to be called their God. And for you, beloved, the single most important thing about you is not the beauty of your clothing, is not the title behind your name, it is not the amount in your bank account, it is where you stand in relation to this God. And if you say, I do not need the charity, I do not need mercy, I do not need grace, I can tell you God is ashamed of the sin that covers you. Turn now to him. Seek his mercy, seek his grace And let me tell you, to those of you who are his by faith, and no matter what your life has looked like, no matter how you have failed, Christ's mercy and grace have dealt with your sins. Your past does not define you, and that God is not ashamed to be called your God. What could be better than that? How do we apply this text? A couple practical applications. First, Just a wonderful reminder in this text of the covenantal nature of the Christian faith. All these men knew the promises of God because it had been passed down generationally. That's exactly what we saw in Psalm 78. We'll tell our children, and they'll tell their children. That's how the Christian faith has been propagated since the beginning. Christians, we must take special care to nurture and discipline the spiritual lives of our children. We're not merely wanting them to conform to sets of outward external rules. We want them to know the covenant promises of God. Parents, hear me on this. Your chief obligation is the nurture and discipleship of your children. You can't outsource it, and you can't replace it. As good as it is to get them into a good college, as good as it is to to make sure they have... um, uh, all sorts of opportunities for personal growth and development and good education. You cannot replace your chief duty of training up and discipling your children. Nothing else is more important than that. Second application, and it's along those lines. God can redeem bad parenting, can't he? We see that in this passage Isaac's parenting was bad. In a lot of ways, Jacob's parenting was worse. He, he had basically four families under his roof, in a sense. And yet God redeemed it and preserved the covenant line and fulfilled his promises. I want to speak to you today, those of you who specifically had very difficult upbringings. I don't want to discount that at all. And it's incredibly hard. And many of us carry baggage because of those things. But our culture desires to paint you as a victim. It's my parents' fault that I'm this way. Don't let that define you or give you an excuse not to grow in the Christian faith. Your parents' shortcomings are nothing compared to the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And so you are not defined by your parents' sins. You're not defined by your parents' shortcomings. And so bad parenting is not an irredeemable curse. We must stop letting it be that. Third, finally, 
It's kind of tucked away in this passage, but those who understand grace respond with worship. There's a subtle point there in verse 21. The aged Jacob leans over on his staff to bless the sons of Joseph, and it says he bowed his head in worship. It's no coincidence, this man who was once so proud, so blinded by his own sin, he now understands grace and he responds by worshiping. Is that true of you? At some point in your life, has worship gone from drudgery to joy? Grace alone can do that and grace will do that. And so if we're a people who have truly experienced the grace of God, it will transform our worship so that we sing heartily and loudly, overflowing with joy, because we have the incredible privilege of proclaiming the praises of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Lord our God, when we think about the the undeserved mercy, the unexpected grace, and the unseen hope that Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph experienced, we realize that we experience the same. All of those things are ours in Christ Jesus, and I pray that we would respond just as, as Jacob did with worship. We pray it in Jesus' name.